Hi there, welcome, and thank you for tuning in. My name is Jason Shoulder, and this is Learning to Fail. People are complicated. I know a lot of complicated people. My guest today is Jeffrey Goldwasser. Jeffrey is a pillar in the Asheville community. Chiropractor, elder, and friend, Jeffrey offers a perspective that both enlightens and heals. Everyone I meet both knows and loves Jeffrey. By the end of this interview, I think you'll understand why. Before we roll today's interview, I want to say how grateful I am to everyone who has subscribed to Learning to Fail and downloaded the episodes currently available. Numerous people have written to say they felt like they were right in the room with us. That is precisely the way I want these conversations to feel. I still marvel at the fact that people are willing to take time out of their lives to talk to me, much less listen. The fact that so many of you have been motivated to take the additional step of writing to me is truly humbling. So thank you. I will do everything in my power to keep bringing you an experience that is at once personal and engaging. Learning to Fail podcast is my avenue for expanding the way I think and the things I think about. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends about Learning to Fail and encourage them to tell theirs. Take a moment to rate us on iTunes and check out our website for additional information about each of the people we interview. While you're there, please visit our Donate and Amazon pages. Each page will give you clear instructions on what to do. For the time being, we are a completely donation-based podcast, so all of our episodes are being brought to you by you. Our donation page will allow you to make one-time or recurring donations. Our Amazon portal enables you to support the podcast without spending any extra money of your own. Please bookmark our Amazon page and start your shopping there every time you visit or buy anything on Amazon. The most helpful thing you can do is simply to listen to the podcast and encourage others to do the same. The world will be a better place when we can all start learning to fail together. Let's jump into my session with Jeffrey Goldwasser. I feel like I know him even better after today. Wait, this is, I don't like this thing right in my Well, put it, face. well, it's only if you wanted to hear you well. You know. well, <laughs> me... well, I don't know what I'm doing. So I don't give a shit with it. <laughs> they hear me. I know. I... <laughs> well, I know what you're I don't doing. I don't even know what I said yes to. Well, that's that. <laughs> Have you officially said yes? Yeah, I'm okay. sitting here. <laughs> All right. So this is uh, this is my podcast. It's called Learning to Fail. Learning to Fail. Okay. And it's a good name, right? Um, it's first of all, that phrase, I learned that phrase in the context of stand-up comedy. Like the the process of becoming good at doing stand-up is going up on stage and bombing and becoming comfortable with bombing and learning how to fail and survive the failure. So 
Okay, I'd put it maybe in a different way, but I understand what you're saying. In, in terms words, of contact? In terms no, of stand-up? In, in, no, 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 no. Not in, in terms of life. Terms, yeah. In terms of life, because you've obviously extending this out into life. Of course, right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I would um, look at the difference between surviving through it and thriving through it. I think that you you limit yourself when you use the word survive. I like that. Yeah. So, yeah, anyhow, that's the only thing. That's why you're say. here, man. I know that's why I'm here. That's why you're here is to bring your your wisdom. Right. You know, your expanded uh, perspective on things. Okay. And it's just a conversation. I'm, you know, it's like it's a chance to kind of get to know you in a different way. Um, these conversations are usually pretty intimate. Yeah, um, that's cool. And uh, I'm willing to go there. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you don't have to talk about anything you don't want to. But at the same time, like the... Um, I've even found myself as the host of this thing going places that I wouldn't have intended to make public, but it's okay. You know, it's not, they're not bad. They're just raw. Yeah. And, yeah, and, yeah. and I think that's, uh, I talk about myself enough in various circles that it's not a big deal. There are no more secrets. There aren't a lot. I mean, uh, it'd be, so yeah, it'd be, uh, there's one piece in my life that I talk about whether or not I would share it in a public setting. I'm not sure if I would. Which piece is that? Well, okay, so, um, you know, so for me, it, it, so if I'm going to really get on it, and I, I don't have a hard time going here, you know, I come from trauma. And, and I really believe, I mean, it's something that's really dear to my heart at this point. I work with a lot of people that I experience that have trauma. I believe that most of us have had trauma in our lives. And um, my trauma was... You know, some of my trauma, main trauma, was from my childhood, and um, and how, and and this actually really ties into and how that kept me from a long, long time. It took a lot for me to heal through, in order to be willing to experience failure and not then um, uh, interpret that as a message that I was no good because that's the message I got as a child mm -hmm. that I wasn't lovable. I'm no good. And so what that does to somebody, uh, what it did to me is it, uh, on one level, it, it created uh, patterns in myself and the way I, I approach the world is that I won't take risks. Because if I fail, then that it re just reinforces a message that I already have inside of me that was given to me through the way that I was raised, you know, and, and not... You know, my mother, and, and I, always, I like to preface this, that there were many facets to my mother, so she wasn't all of what I'm about to express. But this particular facet of it, she didn't want to be a mother. Um, she didn't have the coping skills of raising a child. Um, she didn't like children. And I was her firstborn. So that's what I came into the world into. And so the message that it feels like that I got, you know, and because and I really believe that in my psyche, as I believe in everybody's psyche, we hold on to a story. Whether the story is true or not really doesn't make any difference because it's the story I believe. Right. And um, but it's certainly the story is probably connected to some reality, you know, and, and there's reality in that. But whether it happened just like this is, you know, you can't even prove. But so the story that I have is and that I accepted was that I wasn't lovable and um, and that I'm not good enough. And 
and blah, blah, blah. And uh, so when I went into school, I didn't do well as a student in my early life. And uh, a lot of shame around that. And then, and again, this sort of really reinforced this part of me that didn't want to go out and take a risk. Because uh, in order to fail, you have to take a risk. Right. You have to step out of being safe. You have to step out of that place of knowing everything so that you think you can control it. Because uh, success, failure, which is also just a mental construct anyhow in its sense, because if you really do away with that and just go, I'm showing up, and it is what it is. Right. It's really not a success failure. I make it up based on a judgment that I make on whether it's success failure. That's something I judge. Um, and But anyhow, in, in my uh, way of dealing with the world, there was that part of me, yet I also had a really adventurous soul. You know, when I look back on my life, it's really interesting to me in that, um, you know, because I, I, I just relayed this story to a client yesterday who told me about he just has gotten a car accident and he was going somewhere and he ended up uh, having to ditch his car because he was going to see his grandmother who needed his help. And so he hitchhiked there and um, from where he got in the accident because he still had a ways to travel. And we started talking about hitchhiking and I hitchhiked all over the United States, yeah. you know, and just yep. had lots of experiences. And th that part <clears throat> of me, to me is connected to the failure success. It's like willing to step out into the unknown. So for me, in order to find out whether or not you can do something or not do something, or as you're talking about it, like even in the, in the comedic way, you know, of what you're trying to do, it's a, you have to keep doing it in order to learn about it, to perfect it, to understand it, to relate to it, to, um, and that's true of life to me. And so stepping out on, in the unknown on the road was something that I just started doing when I was like uh, 19 years old. Went all over the United States. That's awesome. Those were different times. I mean, I hitchhiked all over Europe and all over Turkey. I hitchhiked almost the entire country of Turkey, which right now is, <clears throat> that's an unfathomable it is unfathomable. idea given yeah. what's going on. Yeah. But uh, I never felt at real risk. There were a couple, I felt at greater risk of just how insane they were as drivers. Mm -hmm. But um, I never felt that anything bad was going to happen to me. Um, from any of the cars that picked me up. I did, there was a time that we got, we were hitchhiking and we came to a military roadblock. And I'm in like a semi or something, you know, a trucker picked us up. And I would hitchhike with this woman I met who I, we weren't intimate or interested in being intimate, but I wanted to hitchhike. She wanted to be able to hitchhike safely and I wanted to be able to get a ride. And they'll pick up women in, in Turkey. I had long hair. I would walk with my back to the cars and my thumb out right. and they would slow down and then they'd, get past me and see my beard and realize I was a guy and take off again. Like mm -hmm. that was a regular occurrence. Right. So um, I hitchhiked with this woman and and uh, we got picked up right away as long as I had her with me. And so uh, we got stopped at this military checkpoint and the army guys were like, where are you going? And we said, you know, over here, you know, whatever, or the next town was, I don't remember. And they said, well, we'll take you. You know, it's like, no, nah, that's all right. I'll stay with the guy in the truck. You know, I'm not handing myself over to the Turkish military for any reason. Um, I mean, they could have forced me to, I suppose, but they they would have been hard-pressed to justify that. 
Um, but hitchhiking is not done there in that way. Like, someone might give you a ride and then you pay them for it. Like, it's a different mentality. They'll mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> they'll kind of expect you to chip in or something. Um, I think it's part of the sort of the Silk, goes back to the Silk Road days. Um, and the Silk Road, you know, went through Turkey. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, anyway, we hitchhiked everywhere. And, and uh, there was one time where after, like 10 and a half hours through an 11 hour ride, we stopped at a tea house for the 11th time. And uh, and a guy showed up to meet the driver who was packing a visible handgun. And that was a little sketchy for a moment, you know, although he seemed real nice, you know. Um, but uh, the driver, I think he was having a conversation with the driver. I think the driver was expecting money, and this guy was telling him, you're not going to get money from these guys. They're Westerners. They're hitchhiking. They're, you know, um, you did them a solid you know, and so nothing happened to us. And I think the guy with the gun actually helped us, but it was a moment of like, well, this could go sideways, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was about it. Uh, we got picked up by one crazy woman who had like, I think she had, I was sitting in the back of her car. I feel like there was, it smelled like gasoline back there. Or maybe there was gasoline like containers. And I feel like there were bullets <laughs> and shit, you know. And for a woman in Turkey to pick up two guys alone, is a very unusual choice. Uh, but she was really fun and cool and dropped us off where we went. I mean, you know, um, nothing happened between us. Although it, a woman driving alone in Turkey picking up two men would be expected by Turkish men to provide more than just a lift mm-hmm. uh, at that time. Um, but obviously, you know, that's not where we were coming from. We were genuinely just hitchhiking. But yeah, I mean, I'm terrified to hitchhike in the States. I've I did it on Martha's Vineyard because that's a safe container, but I've never done it anywhere else in the U.S. Mm. Well, I've, I've I've hitchhiked across the United States, like I said, back in in seven. Yeah, that was around in the seventies. And I also I was relaying this story yesterday to this guy, and I always, if I was a writer, I would I'd write a short story based on this experience. I I had come down from Massachusetts. I was living up in Massachusetts. And uh, we came down to uh, Somerville, Tennessee, where the farm was. And this is in the 70s. You know what the farm is? No, no, no. Stephen Gaskin and Ina May. And it was a large commune okay. of about 1,000 people. Oh. Well, on 1,000 acres and, and a lot of people. They, and they were an ex- really, really fascinating. Uh, they, they provided... Um, uh, they had this organization called Plenty, and they they grew so much food that they would uh, supply, you know, undeveloped countries with food, especially times of need, like if there was a hurricane that came through, and and they they had boats and they would take oh, it. Wow. Yeah, and they um, Ina May was really um, <clears throat> is really amazing. Ina May was uh, a midwife, and they had a policy and. Uh, that and she wrote a book on it and was very well known and they had a policy that um if uh, you wanted to you could come down there and they would deliver your kid wow. and if you didn't want your child they would keep it for you until you figured that out and uh they, so they did very very unconventional and yeah. really interesting things so i was always fascinated with them so i went down with a bunch of friends and we visited there and i went uh, with the idea of checking it out, with the idea of maybe possibly living there. And uh, that didn't work out for me. I loved what I saw, but 
what I realized really quick is all the men had beards and spoke in a certain way. And I went, I don't think I'm ready to give up my individuality, my sense of self, because that's what it felt like you had to do in order to be there. That was a story I told myself. I don't know if it was true. So anyhow, my friends left earlier than I did. I stayed on a little bit longer. So I'm now hitchhiking back to Massachusetts. So I set out from Nashville, Tennessee. They were in Somerville, which is just south of Nashville. I'm um, and I'm setting out from Nashville, and I remember it took me two or three hours to get a ride from Nashville to Knoxville, and then from Knoxville I'm going north on 75. And, uh, or was it 81? I don't remember what it was. But uh, I was on the side of the road for probably six, seven hours in the hot sun. Oh, man, that's you know, Yeah, I had no, no water to drink. I didn't have a hat, and uh, I was getting sunstroke. And finally, as the sun was setting, this guy picks me up in an old station wagon, old for the time. So it was in the 60s, and the 60s station wagons were really big. Right. And, and I, I was <clears throat> really sick. I didn't feel good because of the, the sunstroke, and I had a splitting headache, I remember. And so I got in the very back of the um, station wagon and went to sleep. And now the sun is starting to set, like I said, and night's starting to come on. And this guy kept picking up hitchhikers. So by the time I really woke up and I, and I had taken some aspirin and stuff and I was feeling better and I would got hydrated, the car was filled with hitchhikers. Wow. But um, it was dark, so no, you couldn't see anybody's face. And we all traveled together for a certain period of time, and everybody's telling their story. But mm -hmm. again, you couldn't see the person that was really telling you the story. Right. And then slowly, one by one, each hitchhiker got out. And because I was going so far north, this guy was going to D.C., I rode with him all the way up to D.C., so you heard all the stories. So I heard all the stories and, and then, you know, saw each one get out, you know, and it was, I don't know, there was something surreal about it that, you know, that just, here's all these conscious beings in this car at the same time. You'll never see each other again. You'll never be with each other again, which is always true anyhow, and heard all these stories and then they, you disseminated, you know, it's, I always thought about writing a, uh. A short story about something like that. Well, you just did. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah, no, that's cool. I mean, that's yeah. I I uh, I'm trying to remember if I ever experienced that. I mean, the closest I came to that would be when I hitchhiked out of Berlin, because there's a long tradition of hitchhiking from Berlin into West Germany. So there were spots right at the at the border of West Berlin where you could get out. People would pick up hitchhikers all the time and take them, you know, through East Germany to West Germany. Mm -hmm. Like you had to travel through East Germany to get to the West. Mm -hmm. And if you were a Westerner, you had permission to do that. You could, but you also, they would time you. And like, if you didn't get there in time. No, this is what, it, what? Well, I was in Germany. Year? I was in Germany in 92, 93. Yeah, so the wall went down in 89? No, the wall was just down, yeah. Right. So, but the tradition of waiting at this particular spot was still lively, because, you know, so, you know, so I would end up in the car with, other hitchhikers who I didn't know, but we all got picked up at the same time. It wasn't like picking up stray cats along the way. And, yeah, yeah. Know, this, this, that's yeah. a yeah, that's a cool story. Yeah. I mean, it, it also reminds me um, of a time when, uh, so at when I was forty-seven, I traveled around the world for a year by myself, 
and um, I was coming out of Israel, and I was crossing the border into Egypt, and I wanted to go to Mount Sinai. Mm. And um, uh, and this this is interesting. And so you have to walk into Egypt. So you walk from the consulate. You, know, you take a bus to the border. You get out of the bus, and then you walk across the border, and then you have to get into a consulate. You know, go into the consulate and show your passport and all this. Um, and uh, and then you come out of there, and then you're in the middle of nowhere. I mean, literally, yeah. in, there's nothing there yeah. except cars, a couple of cars to pick you up right. that act as like taxis. Right. Yeah. And uh, have you been there? No, but oh. Turkey has a similar culture. I mean, yeah. I played back in with a guy for three hours, and then he said, oh, I'll give you a ride in my taxi, which was his Honda. And then he, I didn't need a ride, I, but right. I accepted it, and then he wanted money. I'm like, I thought we were friends. Like, we you know, we just right. played hours of backgammon together. Right. So, uh, Well, anyway. this one you got in knowing you no, were Well, paying, that's a little different. I mean, pay- when you're stranded at a border, you know you're going to pay for your you're ride. You're paying for the ride. Yeah. But so I get in the car, and, um, and there's all these other people that came across the border at the same time. They were on the bus with me. You know, I didn't know any of them. And I said I wanted to go to Mount Sinai, and everybody else was going to Dahab, uh, which is on the Red Sea. Right. So uh, I'm going, well, if everybody else is going to Dahab, I guess I'll go to Dahab. Right. You know? And Dahab was this Bedouin community, um, really actually pretty fascinating, right on the Red Sea, which was beautiful. And when I got there, everybody said to me, they go, you know, you should really learn how to scuba dive. This is like a premier place in the world. It's cheaper than most places, and you learn in the Red Sea. And I said, and they go, and then you could, you know, dive the rest of the way around the world. Because mm. this was yeah, this rel- is a pretty cool thing th- to do. Yeah, yeah, this was really relatively in part of the beginning of my trip. So I said, oh, man, the thought of just carrying my air on my back never really appealed to me. You know, I mean, I just never really appealed but they kept talking to me and talking to me and so i said what the hell so i did it yeah you know and um and then i did i i learned how to you know scuba dive and then i scuba dived in a number of different places as i traveled around the world but the red sea was without a doubt the premier place oh really oh without it was, there was no comparison really oh, there was no comparison did you do like the reef in australia and stuff I like that i did the great barrier reef in australia and even that didn't compare no why I, what's in the red sea what's so special it's so it was clear it was clear and the colors were amazing and the, the fish and the the plant life i mean it was just incredible you could see much further in the red sea than you could see on the great barrier reef um now they might were having i don't remember if they were having more you know of a disruptive weather at the time because I, i'm sure weather affects you know how much it brings up the sure. bottom yeah and then i i i also uh dove in uh off south africa uh, and the interesting part of that was seeing um seahorses um, you know, oh, real. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, like kids yeah. have in the fourth grade, they, yeah, yeah. that exists. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Those are real. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. No. And and uh, and then I also did in uh, I dove in Fiji, which was, and that was beautiful. That's cool, man. So yeah. you got really good. That was a good tip from those people that you. Could... It was a really yeah, and it was also me just sort of staying open to the moment, you know, because yeah. again, I still really wanted to just go up to Mount Sinai, so I did after I left Ahab. I went up, I went over to Mount Sinai, which was the opposite. So 
here you are diving under the water, and right. here I'm going up, you know, Mount Sinai is 8,000 feet, I think. And um, uh, and they said, make sure you give yourself enough time between the two, you know, so you can make this adjustment. Oh, in, to in decompress. Some, yeah, in, yeah. In, in yourself. So, and that was another yeah. interesting experience. So I'm now, I don't know if you've ever been to Mount Sinai. No, but I've, I've climbed some pretty tall mountains. Yeah, but... But it's Mount Sinai. But I don't even know if it's the, the Mount Sinai that Moses was on. Right. Because there's a lot of stories on whether or not there's... Uh... Of course it was. Well, and so, so this is a podcast. I'll, I'll share this story because this was mind-blowing. I mean, now I'm getting into my trip a little bit. So here we are. There's a um, Greek Orthodox uh, monastery at the base of Mount Sinai. And... Um, so we were there I, again, you just meet people. So I'm with some guy, you know, I mean, that's what the trip was like. It's oh, like, yeah, totally. I spend a couple of days with some people or one day or five hours with it, them, you know, as you're traveling around. So I'm with this guy and I don't remember how we hooked up. And one of the monks takes us on a tour of the monastery. I think it's Greek Orthodox. And... He now brings us into a room. He opens the door, and he shows us. And um, and I had been in Europe before I got to Israel in the Middle East. And um, when I was in Europe, just to make a go back a little bit, when I was in Europe, I um, ended up in Krakow. And Krakow is where I could trace my family to. And so Krakow is also right outside of Krakow is where Auschwitz is and Birkenau. And so I went and visited both Auschwitz and Birkenau. And being Jewish, this was really, all of it was really important to me. And, um, and experienced actually a sense of numbness that I, I didn't even realize until I got to Israel. Because in Israel is where I really let the grief go. That's a whole other story. But... Um, but I got to, to see Auschwitz. Auschwitz is like a museum. And you walk into a room, and um, there's just floor-to-ceiling of suitcases. Right. And you see the names of all the people. Right. That, you know, and you go into another room, and there's floor-to-ceiling of uh, eyeglasses. Right. And, you know, and so it really hits you, you know. I mean, and we've all seen the movies and the stories, and, you know. And so now... Um, uh, I'm in uh, this monastery and I walk into a room and there's just skulls there. These were all the skulls of all the monks that had lived there the oh. whole time this monastery was in existence. And what was interesting for me was the contrast between Auschwitz and these skulls of the monks. I didn't see it, you know, I just didn't see it in the same way. One, they're, they're not the same. That's right. But but, mm. the, but the contrast was really stark for me. Um, and so anyhow, you know, just feeling body parts and beings and taking lives and giving a life. You know, I don't, I don't know how else to, I don't know how to put it really, but it, it was such a stark reality. Um, looking, in a sense, at the same thing, but yet they both had such different meaning. Well, I don't think those are the same. I mean, 
were the monks slaughtered? No, no, right. no. I, yeah, I, I, I mean, it's but, like, so it's an honor. But death is death, and, and, and body parts are body parts, and, and uh, you yeah, know, it's like when I look. the Holocaust is. No, I agree. I agree. It, it, I mean, I was in Israel at the Holocaust Museum, and it was just a sculpture that was a pile of shoes, you know? And it was maybe a pile of shoes of a thousand people, which, you know, compared to the six million Jews that died in the Holocaust, a thousand is a drop in the really awful bloody bucket you know but it's enough to make that impression like with the suitcases you know and the eyeglasses i mean it's like you see that and you can't help but be like those belong to people well and they had names on them right the suitcases had names yeah so not even anonymous people that's right right. no no yeah right that belonged to these people that's correct yeah right that name's very similar to mine right yeah goldstein instead of goldwasser did you um did you lose family in the Holocaust? You know, I didn't, that I'm aware of. Yeah. But when I was a kid, I, I grew up in Miami Beach, Florida, and um, my dad owned clothing stores, and I used to work for him as, as a teenager. And I worked with a number of men that were in the Holocaust. I didn't understand it then, because right. they didn't talk about it. You know, I knew that they had been in this, but no one really talked about the Holocaust that much. My sure, dad, most my dad, of them don't want to talk about yeah, it. Yeah, my dad didn't talk about the war, and, yeah. and you know. Um, I think the only survivors that I knew, like camp survivors, were my landlords in L.A. They both had tattoos on their arms. Yeah, well, these men yeah. all had tattoos um, on their arms. And uh, they were awful guys. <laughs> they were really... They were truly unpleasant. Well, but, you, you know, but uh, but that's just that was their personality that was unrelated. I mean, they were just you know they were Eastern European Jews, which a lot of Eastern Europeans are you know in our cult. There's such a different culture from us. I mean, it's got less to do with being Jewish than you know being from that part of Europe in that era. Right, and that era, and mm-hmm. and and that yeah, right, and 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 dealing with whatever they dealt with. But clearly, anybody that's going through a Holocaust. And the amount of trauma. I mean, I don't think we. I, I'll speak for myself. I can't, couldn't even begin to understand, feel, take in what that must have been like on a day-to-day basis. Although I must admit that when I went to Birkenau and actually went into where they stayed, and you still see the stacks there, and and having memories of. Um, not Schindler's List, but uh, Sophie's Choice, mm, right? The movie. I could feel the amount of torture that what the pain, what that must have been like in the cold, starving. I, I mean, I could just feel it in in in, uh, in my body and my being, and and yet I've never experienced it, you know. Right, and I would, not to diminish your experience, but I would imagine that's a fraction of a fraction of what it was like to. I agree with you. Experience it firsthand. I agree I mean, with you yeah, 100%. It's like, you know, I agree with you. It's, uh, I mean, a bad day for me, still a pretty good day. In, That's right. In Auschwitz, you know. I mean, uh, oh, and not even. <clears throat> right. I mean, yeah. you know, it, it's, 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 uh, I mean, even to talk about it that flippantly, it's so far beyond wrong. I mean, it's like, it's unfathomable to us. It is. It um, is. I remember I had a long talk with my grandmother. Uh, my grandparents got out, but it wasn't pretty. Um, and and my grandmother would say, you know, just to know that kind of fear 
You know, she said, you should never know it. I That's hope you right. never know that kind of fear. Yeah. And that, I remember when she said that, like she was almost refeeling it in that moment, uh -huh. as opposed to when she recounted stories of things that actually happened instead of things that you might be afraid might happen. Right. The things that she was afraid might happen were more tangible and more, they're more palpable than the things that actually did happen to her, which were awful, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but, you know, I also think like at that time, even before awful things happened between Nazis and victims, families treated other members of their family like commodities. I mean, women were offered to people on a temporary basis to close a business deal, you know, or whatever. Like the way geishas are and stuff like that, you know, in cultures where that's... I'm going to say like marginally less involuntary, you know. Um, I mean, I don't really know, but some, you know, there are people who choose the life of a geisha and there are other people who don't. Um, but culturally, that that's something that exists. It's almost like still acceptable. Um, but this is different. I mean, it's selling your own or renting your own family member. Like, it's just a different time. Things that we would not well, do Well, I think now. it still happens in, in parts of the world today. I mean... Uh, oh, no, it does. Well, it absolutely yeah, does. Yeah. Thailand is crazy like that. Yeah. I, I don't know enough about it, but clearly. And we live in a patriarchal world, you know. I mean, it's still male-dominated and, and uh, very... I mean, when you bring up women, it's... it's um, you know, we have the power. And uh, there's something wrong. In my judgment, there's something wrong with that. You know, that we, it's, it's the way you, any culture sees any other culture or one sex sees another sex as, as um, um, not equal. You know, and then when it's not equal, then I get the right to, if I'm in power, to do what I want. And, uh, and certainly to live when you don't have the power to live in that kind of, in that kind of world, and we're all living in one right. that's like that, you know, and, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard. And, and like you said, back then, I mean, consciously, the, it, the consciousness is changing. It seems. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it seems. And, uh, although, I mean, <laughs> well, finish your thought. No, I'm just saying, you know, the consciousness is changing, it seems. And uh, and yet it's still, we still are humans that are grappling with a sense of survival. We, you know, we even started out with that word. And, and to me, that's a, the, the difference between thriving and surviving are really big. And that has to do with a level of really opening up to the full fullness of who we all are. Right. Not not just who I am in relationship to you, but who we all are, and uh, and the journey that we take to get there. And, and clearly, the world's changing in a lot of ways, and the consciousness is changing. And my only hope is that it's changing enough so that things can be different. But a lot of times, I sit around and go, "It's hard to see." 
I mean, it's it's almost, yeah. It feels like it's changing in what I'm going to call our circles. Because, you know, you and I, even though we don't travel in the same circles, we travel in some overlapping circles of people who consider themselves, and the word they use to describe it is conscious, and whether they're conscious or not, they're making an effort to be what they think conscious is. And so we're surrounded by a lot of people who are who are trying to make progress in that direction that I think you're talking about. But boy, are there a lot of people who are almost pulling back the other way because, you know, nature abhors a vacuum. I mean, it's like mm -hmm. it's, I mean, I think what's happening, and I don't, I don't like to do a lot of political stuff. I don't feel knowledgeable enough to do mm -hmm. it responsibly. But what's mm -hmm. happening in our country right now, mm -hmm. there are two Americas more than there have ever been two Americas, you know, since the Civil War. I don't know if it's more, if that's true, that it's more. I don't know that, that that's true. But there's, a, well, there's the, a big divide. I mean, what I do feel and sense is there's a big divide. It feels like the, it feels like the chasm between the two sides is mm -hmm. a little deeper. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, I mean, if if you if you're judging by the rhetoric, <laughs> by what you're hearing people say, if if people's words are a reflection of their thoughts and their thoughts are reflections of their right. what they believe, it's it's much uglier and more extreme than certainly than I've ever heard it. Um, you know, people listen to AM talk radio and they had their sort of more closed. You had to seek out those that level of what I would consider vitriol um, but now you don't have to seek it out it's everywhere it shows up on your Facebook page no matter who you're voting for I mean and I and one of the most interesting things I heard recently was a woman saying people aren't so much looking for information as affirmation mm. and we're just we're not at a time where people care about the truth people just want their feelings Affirmed. Affirmed, and, and they they want to feel right. Right, and I think that's part of the problem on any side. Yeah, I would know. <laughs> I would agree. Yeah, you know, I is, mean. Is, is that people want to feel right, and and that my way, this is the way I see it, the way is the way that it should be. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, um, I don't just buy what Clinton has to say or, the Democrats, I mean, it's people are still, you know, especially when power comes into this. I think, uh, you know, there's a, it's a big, that's a big concept, power, and how it's used and how one uses it. Uh, you know, and again, I'll just talk for myself because it's just me really trying to take responsibility for who I am in what I do. And, and I'm not perfect. And so to be honest with myself, and um, and not and try not to kid myself and listen to feedback that I might get so that I have a, a, a picture of myself from outside of myself, really useful at times. And then how much am I willing to really sit with that and listen rather than defend myself and, you know, and, and, and put it back into the construct that I want to see about who I think I am, which is a whole nother discussion. But um, you know, so it's, I, I know that for me and my journey on the planet and being alive, it's, it's how do I keep taking more responsibility for who I am and how I impact the world? 
because I can't make you be different. You know, I can't fix anybody else. I really can't fix myself. I, I really believe in a, in a concept of that I can heal. I can't fix it. Right. And uh, and I and I know from working with people for a really long time that I can't fix anybody else. I can't heal anybody else. I can help in the process. It's way bigger than me. You know, and I've been working with people for a really long time. And so, um, and I think, again, going back to it, I think, and the way you interact with power, each of us, you know, uh, is, is really important to look at and to stay aware of and to um, bring into your focus. And, and part of that then, uh, you know, in my, in my circles these days, really looking at the privilege that you've grown up with and that you live in or don't, right. you know, and, and then taking responsibility for that. And for me, uh, you know, being a white male, I am Jewish uh, by birth at least, um, you know, educated, middle-class, able-bodied, um, you know, a lot of places in the, if you put it into the context of target, non-target, you know, um, so I have a lot of non-target status, you know, I now am older, so I'm, you know, that places me into a target because it's really a, a youth-oriented world, um, but, uh, really taking responsibility and looking at the privilege that I've been granted in being alive. You know, it's like you even said, you know, that we will never know what it's like to have really been in Auschwitz or, you know, during the Holocaust or something. And just like I'll never really know what it's like to live in this country, you know, with black skin, right. you know, or to, you know, or to live and grow up you know, in this country, knowing that my sexual preference is not okay and that I'm going to be discriminated against and chastised because I have a particular preference that people think are wrong. You know, so I, I'm really been grappling and really sitting with my privilege. And because with privilege, what I've discovered is that it can become really unconscious because it's like I swim in this ocean all the time, so I don't even know I'm in the water. Right, because it just is, and so if I start to now bring awareness into this, take responsibility for the privilege I have that's just granted to me, you know, and um, yeah, and operate differently with a different awareness, and it takes a lot to keep that going, to keep taking, you know, bringing up that awareness, keeping that awareness up, and um, making conscious choices from that place. So what are some of the ways that you work with people? I mean, let's talk about that. I haven't seen you in a while, so I don't know what you're up to right now. Well, you know, I still do my chiropractic. And, um, you know, I, uh, I started, one of the things I mentioned in the beginning is uh, I've ended up working with people with trauma. And I think I always have, but I'm now more aware of it to the degree that uh, trauma has affected people and and becomes part of their way of being in the world. And when it's been traumatic enough that it's very disruptive to your life, you know, and 
affects you on the biological, the psychological, the emotional, the spiritual, which it works on all of those, and then keeps you from being, you know, in a sense, getting back to this original conversation, being open enough in yourself so that you're willing to fail. So that you're willing, you know, if you want, we want to use those words again, you know, I think that takes a certain comfortableness within yourself to be able to just put yourself out there and whatever you're doing, whether it be a stand-up comedian, whether learning, it's learning a new skill and, you know, and then starting to live with that skill. And because in the beginning, when you're learning, you just don't know, right? You don't know what you don't even know. And, and, and that has to do with, well, so what's, what's your, your sense of self that allows you to get to that place. So I've been working with a lot of people with trauma and uh, in a very conscious way. And that's actually brought it back to me because it's allowed me to work deeper and deeper with my own trauma that I grew up with that I wasn't even aware of to the degree that I am now. I've worked with men's work for 23, 24 years. And to help men become more real with themselves, take responsibility for themselves, understand who they are, uh, look at their shadow sides of you know, why they um, maybe aren't the person that they really would like to be and and get vulnerable, intimate, you know, with who we are and, and be able to speak that and support each other. So we're not alone because men tend to be alone in this world. We're sort of raised in that way, at least in this culture. And uh, so I keep doing the men's work and uh, I can maintain my spiritual practice, you know, of way, my way of connecting with the way I see it, which is not necessarily conventional. And, uh, and you know, I just had an experience, um, and th this has been pretty profound. My next-door neighbor died uh, last November, and... Uh, and we were really good neighbors, had a really good neighbor relationship, but we weren't social friends. And um, without going into the whole story, at one point she asked me if I would be the trustee of her. Actually, at that point, it wasn't a trust. It was, what, would I be the executor of her will? Mm, right. And so I just said, sure. Not really knowing yeah, what I was that's, saying. It sounds easy. Yeah, right, right. Which it's not. <laughs> what actually. could possibly go wrong? <laughs> right, or or how, or what does it really entail? Right. Um, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I mean, no, that stuff gets ugly fast. Right. Yeah. So anyhow, um, she uh, at some point she was dying, and in and what she realized was um, she didn't want to have a will. She wanted to have a trust so she could disseminate what she owned to people she really cared about. Mm. And in a lot of ways, and it's beautiful, it's a great lesson, and give people, because she had different properties, she wasn't a super rich person, but right. she was well enough off, and she had properties, and she had money and stuff, and she's wanted to be able to change people's lives. Mm. And she has. So she asked me if I'd be the trustee of her trust. Right. And 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 once she passed, and the way she passed was also really interesting to be able to watch this. I wasn't there, but to be able to watch it and, and be connected to it. She went out to Oregon. She had cancer. She was dying of cancer. They gave her six months. 
and she wanted she wanted to die when she wanted to die. She didn't want to wait till the end and suffer. Right. Um, so she moved to Oregon. She had to get an apartment there and go through the whole procedure that Oregon has in order to have uh, assistant physician death. Hmm. And um, and so I heard about it all through the person that uh, ended up going with her, and um, you know it was pretty amazing. It was really amazing. But so two weeks ago, um, in her trust, she wanted eight people to take her ashes out to Yosemite in California and disperse her ashes. And we did this two weeks ago. Oh, so you were a part of that. I was. I was one of those eight people. Yeah, I was one of those eight people. And, um, you know, and I'd known this person for eight, nine years. And when I got to Yosemite, so Yosemite was where she would go. She, she lived in California for a really long time before coming here. And she was raised in Louisiana and, um, Yosemite was where she would go every year on her birthday. She told me, Hmm. and, um, and she was a big horse person. So sometimes she would go into the back country on, on horseback, you know, um, sometimes she would just camp, um, maybe more in the Valley, but she loved, uh, Yosemite. And actually one of the people there who I met for the first time when we were there was another, uh, was a school teacher. They were both school teachers. So she was a school teacher. And so was this other person. The other person taught high school and my next door neighbor taught, um, elementary school. And, um, they created a curriculum around Yosemite for <clears throat> elementary all the way through high school for kids that possibly thought they might want to go into forestry. And uh, so this woman was telling us all about that. But when I got to Yosemite, when, when my wife and I, Tyrrell, got to Yosemite, all of a sudden I went, wow, Carol brought us here. Mm. And I don't know if she really had an intention for it to impact us or me the way that it did. But I'm going to believe that she did have that intention because it really impacted me. There was a time when I was with Tyrrell while we were there at Yosemite because we stayed on after we um, met with these people. We spent a day with them and, and um, you know, disseminated her ashes and then had a meal together and talked a lot about her and so forth. And then they all left and then Tyrrell and I stayed the next day, uh, a couple of days. And at some point I was just looking out. Have you, have you been to Yosemite? Oh yeah. I love it. Yeah. It's the place when I came back from Ecuador where I lived for six months, I knew I was going to have a hard time coming home. Mm. And I told my dad, I said, I arrive. I want to leave first thing in the morning and go to Yosemite. Hmm. And we hiked. They had these base camps. You don't have to carry your food or anything. I carried a tent because I was not going to sleep in a cabin because I was 21 too arrogant for that. Mm-hmm. But uh, what you could hike was like a you know 10-mile hike between camps. So it's kind of perfect to do each day. Mm-hmm. Um, and we did like two or three days. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was perfect. Mm-hmm. It was amazing. And I've been back uh, one other time. But, yeah, it's it's incredible. So, um yeah. So yes, and, I've been there. and I felt like so. What I was about to say 
is it I was there and I was aware that I was it was affecting me in a way that I was going to be different. I am different from being here. I remember looking at Half Dome and El Capitan and all of this granite, you know, mountains and from from being in the valley and being above the valley because right. I was above the valley at a certain point. I wasn't the same person. It really had a strong effect on me. And I and I just was like so honored and elated that um, she brought me there. Yeah. And I'd been there 40 some odd years ago, but I didn't remember it the way I experienced it this time. I never step in the same river twice. Yeah, right, right. You know, so. And, and what Carol, my next door neighbor, taught me is um, a way to die, a way to leave. It's been a real blessing that she gave me. And, you know, that to me is also another part of life. Just like, how'd this happen? <laughs> I mean, had it happened that you ended up in that yeah, position? Yeah, all of it, all of it. You know, just her and my next door neighbor, uh, right. and just, just the whole thing. Her asking me to be her trustee of her of her trust. You know, because I once she passed away, I was going, why me? Why'd she ask me to do this? I mean, we, like I said, we were good neighbors. We talked right. to each other on the other side of the fence because I live in a rural area, and and we'd be out both working on our land and stuff, and. We'd just get into conversations. I mean, there was a time when we'd sit on the porch, too, you know, and talk about different things. But it wasn't that much. Uh, well, you made an impression. Obviously. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I think, I mean, I, I mean, I'll speak for my impression of you. I think you come across as someone whose judgment is reliable. You know, you, 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 um, you seem willing to think about things, see them from different angles, uh, try to make the best decision for the right reasons. You want someone like that in charge of uh, your will, you know. Mm. You want someone who's who's not going to get totally lost to the drama, and there will be drama. Um. And just someone who you feel like, you know, in through all that, will be able to kind of see not only what's right, but even maybe more accurately perceive her intentions. Yes. No. You know, and I think you, I think you have those qualities, and mm -hmm. I think she recognized them, and I, I think, based on your role in the Asheville community, I think there are a few other people who have that. Perception. sense of you that perception of you experience you that way you know mm -hmm. um so i'm less surprised than you sound but uh but i don't know that you're all that surprised either well i'm not now i was in the beginning yeah. i really was going i had to sit with you know why me what you know and actually i asked some of her good friends or one good friend especially you know and and she said something i mean she trusted me yeah and 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 the the part and, and and this is probably true about all of us is that we don't really have to know each other that well because she didn't know me that well right but she felt something you know so it's it's been like i just said just having this experience 
has opened up like me looking at stuff and going, you know, and, and sitting with and accepting at the same time. Yeah, she did see something yeah. and um, sense something with me, even though she wasn't an intimate friend. You know, I wonder how that relates to you talking about your family upbringing and your mom sort of conditioning you, I think, unintentionally, but effectively nonetheless, you know, how to view yourself and not necessarily view yourself, I don't want to say that you viewed yourself unfavorably, but, you know, learning how to find your own value because it doesn't sound like that was handed to you. It was not handed to me. No, it's been, um, it's been part of my journey. I mean, without a doubt, because I did not for so much of my life. I mean, not even, I mean, even into my adulthood and stuff, you know, um, I, I didn't have that inner sense of I'm okay. Um, that's developed over years. And for whatever reason in my makeup, I've always been an explorer of the inner world hmm. from the time that, um, you know, I mean, I, I remember, you know, I, going through high school and everything, but it really started when I was in college, when I really got to see it. And it started with drugs, you know, and, and just smoking pot and doing psychedelics and, and stuff of that nature. And something happened through the experience of psychedelics, especially, um, that opened up a vision. Uh, I, I mean, I can remember this of going, I, I, re I am spiritual. I'm a spiritual being. I, didn't, I don't think I ever had that awareness in my childhood, although I question whether I did, but I didn't know how to frame it. Um, because I've heard stories about myself from, especially from some parents' friends, about my sensitivity when I was a kid, uh, and how my father struggled with that. Right. And, um, but anyhow, I, I, I've always had this, uh, and I'm thankful for it. I, I feel blessed that it's part of my journey, is that I've always, you know, had this desire to understand the inner world, really more so than the outer world. The outer world never made a whole lot of sense to me. Uh, it still doesn't. Right. And uh, and I'm thankful that I have such a strong inner world and that that's been my focus for 47 years now since, you know, I, I, I the, the, the demarcation is when I was 20. Hmm. And What happened? Um, again, I just said drugs, you know, psychedelics. That, okay, that's know. what that's what did it. Yeah, I well, I don't know if it was <clears throat> twenty, nineteen, whatever, okay. but that's you know the story I tell There's myself. Before was, drugs and after drugs is the. Yeah, there was a real, you know. I, I mean, they're, they're, you're not the same, huh? for sure. You're not the drugs are especially psychedelics. You're not the same person after you've done them than you were before you did. Them. Oh no, I, mean, no, I can that, say that's impossible. I wasn't, you know. Yeah, I well, mean, I mean, either. You know, yeah. I, I mean, I I remember it, you know, and and. Uh, uh, yeah, and it was also, but there was, it was also a period of time. I mean, this is the late sixties and, sure. you know, it was, a, it was, it was, you weren't the only one. No, I clearly wasn't the only <laughs> one. And it was just every, it was this exploration that was yeah. happening, you know, and, and it's like, sometimes I think today about, um, you know, the youth, uh, 
and they'll never understand. And I, I never understood where my grandparents came from, and the youth will never understand where I came from. Right. Because they didn't live during the 50s. They didn't live post-World War II. And if you didn't, you didn't. And so you don't have that sense of how you were, f you know, affected. Because I really believe, if, as I look back, I was affected by the war because I was post-war and how conservative it was then and the way everybody was like, taking a sigh of relief that Hitler didn't win the war and didn't take over the world, you know, and that we can, you know, build a life that we think is appropriate, but we're not going to let you, and I'm talking about the kids, right. go out of the boundaries of what we think is right and real. And the 60s were like saying, screw this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. really, that's all of a sudden it was like, hey, man, you know, the Beatles came along and 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 just things started changing things that, uh, you know, didn't seem like uh, it fit into the box anymore. And the youth were saying, man, I like this. Right. And it was great. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I, I'm thankful for is that I was 18. You know, you were right. You were right there in the zone. That was perfect age. Right there. Yeah. How and old are you now? 67. 67. Yeah, it was a yeah. special time. It was a really special time, and I feel fortunate for it again. Yeah. You know, we'll so you were walk. twenty and sixty-nine. You were uh, the year I was born. Yeah, I was born in sixty-nine. You were twenty. Man, right. that is in the pocket. Right, and I'm traveling all over all all of the United uh, States. Yeah. Going to that's when I was in Yosemite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> you know, and Woodstock's happening, and you know, it's really wild time. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah. Yeah, I felt I, there was a long time where I felt very connected to that era in our country. Like I was a big deadhead for a while and big, not compared to actual deadheads. You know, I've been to 20 shows, which to someone who likes any band other than the dead <laughs> sounds like a lot. <laughs> but anybody who's into the dead is like 20, you're a virgin, dude. Right, 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 right. And know. I never even saw the dead. Oh. <laughs> You call yourself a hippie. <laughs> I, I saw Dylan a lot. I saw the Beatles. I saw. You've really never seen the Dead in any capacity, even the the new iterations. Oh, I've never seen them. No, in person. Oh. Never. I've listened to them, oh, but okay. I've never seen them yeah. in person. Yeah, they're special, but not to everyone, and I certainly understand it. Yeah. But uh, I was had an experience with the damn. I started playing guitar again. Sula wanted to play guitar. She's been begging me for six months to teach her guitar. Hmm. So I bought her a little travel guitar, knowing that if she decided not to stick with it, I now have a travel guitar. Mm -hmm. And, But in order to play with her, I wanted to be competent. So I started taking lessons again. Hmm. And so the other day, and I'm my lessons are electric, but she's playing acoustic. And, and uh, I really want to learn jazz. So my teacher taught me, um, so what? And it's just two chords. But it's really amazing what you can do with two chords and it's like if you can make two chords just sing you know then uh then you're a musician you know as opposed to playing lots of different complicated chords a lot of the work's done for you once you can master those transitions you sound musical because you're doing all the things you were told to do mm -hmm. but when you have two chords you know and a transition that's delicate and getting the timing right and all this stuff it's the reason he starts with it um you you really have to dig deep in order to bring out music that's compelling to your listener. And so I was doing that, and he was teaching me, and then I, I heard, he 
he taught me this new you know scale that you play to solo over the music and then i realized like oh that's what jerry was playing like i heard all of once i started playing this scale i heard all of his solos mm. you know and i just started playing his music over this you know iconic jazz tune you know and so then i sent a text to my guitar teachers like i just had the best jam session with myself i just played 45 minutes of you know so what bird song <laughs> you know <laughs> got a uh, a mashup you know all sounding shitty i'm sure you know because i'm not very good mm -hmm. but i was totally enjoying it you know mm. just just lost in it loving it um, which is a, such a special place to be you know to to bring your to have that experience to like you just said well it's probably shitty well that's to other ears for you in that moment you were enmeshed like you said totally yeah and totally yeah. connected to that experience in a way that's really special. Well, it's a guitar for me is it's not something I ever want to do publicly. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't have that illusion where it's like comedy. You have to do publicly. You can't just write down your funny thoughts and read them aloud to yourself. Like that doesn't really have meaning until you have an audience. But music for me, that's something I can I can do alone and I intend to mostly do it. alone. You can do it with friends. It can sure. be communal in that way. Right. Right. Um, and maybe the day will come that I want to play out, and I'm I'm not saying I I can't, but uh, I remember I, a lot of times when I'll see bands and they just suck, and they're just so bad, but I can tell that the guitarist is way better than I'll ever be, mm -hmm. and I'm like God, I wish I could suck as bad as him, mm -hmm. <laughs> like to be that good, mm -hmm. um, and uh, so that's kind of how I feel about music. It's it's a private, it's it's a place where I go. I get I get to escape too, you know. It's it's a it's a little promised land for me. Um, See, is, so this is taking it sort of another place. Um, I, I think music is a universal language. Sure, you know, <clears throat> it goes across all cultures, and especially today with world music and the way that different cultural music is being infused with other culture music and. But it, it speaks to such a deep part of ourselves. And it's not something that you understand totally. It's something you feel. And I'm talking about a few of the recipients mm -hmm. of music more <clears throat> more than certainly there, there must be an understanding if you're playing like you're talking about, taking those two chords. But then you get immersed into it in a certain way that it becomes, it's, it's, it's a language. It's a, I don't know, experience. You know, like in some of the work that I do, I mean, I'm not a musician at all, but I love working with sound and healing. Right, yeah. You know, and didgeridoos and tuning forks and, you know, and Tibetan bowls. And, and, uh, and I don't even claim to be any, you know, really, truly big sound healer, but yet, yet I use it because it's so powerful. I mean, it's, I can, I was telling somebody this yesterday because they could hear me. They were in the waiting room and they, they came in and they said, do you, you play didge? Didge, like some hipster, right? Bro, and I said, "Yeah, I do. I play didge because, and I have all these didges over here." And, and uh, I said, "But I could, you can put somebody on the table, and and they could be really strung out, and their nervous system just really hyped up, and you start playing the didge, and especially on their body and stuff, right. and use different, and." just to watch what happens to them and feel what happens to them in a really short period of time. I remember the first time you <clears throat> didgeridooed me 
in your uh, didgeridid me. <laughs> and it was our first chiropractic session. And, and uh, you are, in my opinion, a very gifted chiropractor. Um, I really, f I always feel better after I've been to you. I feel safe going to, I've referred a lot of people to you. Like, I really think you're very good. Uh, Thank you. I remember the moment you, you know, I had like my eyes closed. You've been doing all this stuff. I didn't know where you were, you know. And then the next thing I know, I hear this didgeridoo, and I'm like, I'm in Asheville now. <laughs> so, so, I, you know, it's, it's, uh, I like, I mean, you know, just to give you what my stepmother calls a put up instead of a put down. She taught kindergarten for a long time. You know, I think it's interesting. I, you, I think you're an extremely skilled technician in like the Western way. Like you understand the body. You, you've always explained things to me in terms of, you know, anatomy, you know, when it was appropriate. And like mm -hmm. you clearly get that. You're not doing, you know, sort of fairy healing in there <laughs> exclu exclusively. Um, there are people who you would go to for healing and all they would do is build a didgeridoo on you and the, and the thing and the sound healing and stuff like right. that. And that's a different kind of session. Right. And I'm not, right. I, I'm trying not to dismiss it. No, failing. Yeah, no. And, but... and I would say to you, no, seriously, Jason, it's not to be dismissed because it's, it's all is what it is. Right. So I'll just leave yeah. it at that. In terms of you and yeah. what I look for when I look for healing and help. Right. I like, like, I'm much more interested in some of that sound healing when I feel like it's correlating with something a little more structured. Like, right. I, I personally feel like the unstructured value of existence is most uh, efficient when it dovetails with the structured value. And so when you do, you know, actual manipulation, chiropractic work that you right. do and you bring in some of the subtler right. sound healing techniques. To me, that has a, a greater likelihood of working. I would say e even than either of them, arguably than either of them in isolation. Got it. And and, and that's true for you. Yeah. Right. And and, and I'm right. And, yeah. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> no and and I mean, uh, you know, that's the beauty of this whole thing is that we're all different. Um. And. Uh, and that's really, out of all the years I've been doing chiropractic and working with people, to me, it's like um, the more that you have at your fingertips in anything that you do and you can be versatile with people, then you can see lots of different kinds of people. Sure. But some people really respond just to a really subtle, you know, it, uh, I'm going to use the word ethereal more um, uh, or subtle way of working with energy and that if you did anything like more of what I do sometimes with adjusting, it'd be too much for them. Sure, I can see that. Yeah. I agree <clears throat> that as a practitioner, you want to have as many, as you sort of called it, tools in your toolbox as possible. Right. You want as much technology at your disposal as you can get. I mean. Right. It, it just allows a flexibility to be able to be uh, of service in different ways for lots of different kinds of people. Right. Yeah. And some people can't do that. Some people, it's just enough for them to get really good at what they do. You know, I just had an experience. So um, I met this guy recently who moved to Asheville, who's a chiropractor. 
and um, <clears throat> and but he's not opening up an office for various reasons. And at some point, he asks, you know, we we got together to trade chiropractic, mm. and he put his hands on me and started working with me, also analyzed me and stuff like this. And I said to myself, "Whoa, this guy's a master." Mm. I mean, I've had a lot of people's hands on me over the course of all these years. And I said, this guy is a master. I can tell the way he talks, the way he thinks, the way his hands feel, the way he adjusts, you know. I mean, he is, and I was telling him this the other day because we, we, I adjusted him the other day. And I actually said to him, you know, I'm a little intimidated. Hmm. Uh, at which, and, and I've I never once heard you say that. Yeah, and I said that to him. I said, you know, I, I just want to own that before I work on you. This is the second time I was working on him. Yeah. I said, I'm a little intimidated. And I just, it's not in my way, but I'm going to speak it so it's not in my way. Right. So, yeah, I yeah, can, yeah. so I can just be present with you and give you what I got, you know. Yeah. And uh, it's, yeah, it's, I think that uh, I don't consider myself a master. And I'm good, but I'm not a master. And I think when you get in the presence of a master, Right. It's different. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I feel that way about the guitar. I had a guitar teacher in L.A. who, he wasn't the best teacher. And he'll hear me say this, unfortunately, if he listens to this. <laughs> but uh, but he grew up playing music. And it, and his father was a jazz composer. His father's like, you know, musician, musician kind of thing. I mean, he, when my friend grew up, you know, Count Basie was doing heroin in his dad's bathroom. Mm. If Count Basie did heroin. <laughs> I don't know if he did mm -hmm. or not. But I mean, those guys were in his house. Mm -hmm. Like, so he's been playing guitar his whole life. Mm -hmm. And I took lessons from him because I met him at a barbecue at my house. And I loved the way he played. And I was like, I want that. Mm -hmm. And so I would play with him for, you know, one to two hours a week and sometimes twice a week for a while. And I got a lot better in his presence. But he wasn't a linear teacher. Like, he didn't... And he would say it. He's like, I, I, I want... You should go to my teacher. Mm -hmm. You know, there are better teachers out there for you. I was like, I know, but I want what you have. Mm -hmm. You know, I just wanted to be around his ear and gaining his sensibility because um, he's so naturally good. Mm -hmm. It's so deep within him. Um, mm -hmm. It was... It's amazing. And, you know, like the guitar teacher I have now, uh, I think he's a better teacher. I don't know that he's a better musician. Mm -hmm. um, and, I mean, I think he's very good. Uh, but, and I don't know that he's not. I haven't seen them both do their thing, you know, to the nth degree. But um, there's just something, you know, so amazing about being around this guy who really is, I think he's a master, even though he probably doesn't think he is. He's, he's got a level of mastery. Um, and it's pretty spectacular. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was very cool. Um, I know what you mean, or I feel like I have a, my own experience that parallels what you described, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, of being around people who seem to be very dialed in on something that you know what, what you feel with some level of proficiency, but then you're around mastery, and it's like, wow, that is 
that is different. I ain't got that. It's different. You know? yeah. yeah. It's just, it's just different. And, and you know, the beautiful piece about it is, um, is not judging myself. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You it know, doesn't no, lessen it's just, you. It's just, that's right. It's yeah. just appreciating what it is, uh, and who this person is. And as I said to him, even cause he's works on me some, I said, I'm going to learn from you every time you touch my body. Yeah. Um, and I am. And uh, my adjusting will be different every time I go now back to do what I'm doing right? because of this. And, and I've experienced that in many different ways o over the course of my life. And, you know, and for me, you know, going back to talking about my childhood and everything, one of the best ways, it's not even, I don't like saying it that way, um, healing, the, the healing process within myself is getting to that place of not judging myself you know, is of, of a real acceptance and a love for myself. So as I grew up, that I didn't have that, you know, because it was love was conditional, you know, so it was based on how I performed in one way or another. It's at least that's what it seemed like to me. Um, and uh, I didn't feel like I was really performing well within the different confines that I was in. So my sense of loving myself was not there. And as I've healed through my life, and I have, it feels like I have, and continue to be part of this process, one of the, the strongest experiences I have today is how much I love myself. And, uh, and, as, and, and, when I, and you asked me about working with people, because I work with people in lots of different fashions. It's not just the chiropractic. And, and one of the gifts that I think anybody can really achieve in their life is really loving themselves. And this is not something that you understand. It's not something you can make happen. It's something that happens over a course of time. And it's something that's deep inside oneself. So I speak to people all the time and they'll explain something to me about themselves or about life or about this. And I go, but do you have it down here in your heart? Right. Has it made that journey from the head to the heart? So there's an integration between not only do you understand it and you can repeat it and talk about it so we can talk about this, but do you really get it? So... Uh, couple things that came to mind while you're talking about that uh one is like uh, first of all i think some of that comes with age because i i spend a lot of the more time i spend around older people um i first noticed it when i was filming people mm -hmm. is you know the hardest thing about filming and interviewing someone is getting them to not behave like they're on camera and old people don't behave like they're on camera part of it is i think they don't even get it like they don't really understand the technology the technology is so new it's like oh is that is that working like they don't get it you mm -hmm. know so so there's a lack of self-consciousness just by the by their ignorance and mm -hmm. um, and that's a very effective you know they come off much more naturally um but also you know listening to you talk about it it sounds like some of that self-love and self-acceptance it takes time and it comes with age like genuine self-love it feels like you know it's not instant it takes time i i think that that's true but it also takes i believe that you have to be on a journey that's willing to heal in order to get that because there's plenty of people that and you use the word old 
um, and I'd love to go into this to old because um, uh, I think it's really uh, it's actually got a negative connotation in our in our society I believe um, <clears throat> but that um, and I uh, see this can't happen here where I, where I lose my train of thought uh, sure it can <laughs> old you're talking about old you're talking no about... I, yeah but it, w it was really old was another piece it was something else that I was thinking about in relationship to self-love understanding well oh yeah it, that that um, I know plenty of people that are older who don't love themselves you know so it's not so I agree with you it does come with the journey in other words so the extension of the right. journey um, but it, it's not part of the journey unless you open to that part of the journey that you become a participant of the journey so like for my father when my father died he was 81 i don't believe he loved himself yeah it's not automatic i wasn't suggesting that, no, I, that it's guaranteed yeah it, right I, I was just making that yeah. distinction yeah 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 um and i'm glad you know i'm cool with that yeah. uh where i was also going with it was like i saw the tragedy of dying young in a different way uh-huh yeah. You know, like, it's not just dying before you have a chance to live all these, you know, things that could happen for you. But also just, you know, maybe ne not being around long enough to come to truly love yourself. You know, like, what a bummer. You know? <clears throat> well, again... Life happens the way it happens. You, you know, I've got, as you say that, I flash back onto kids that die of cancer. And I've seen, you know, like YouTubes or right. something, I don't remember where I've seen, of the wisdom that just blew my socks off from a nine year old. Sure. You know, that was dying of cancer. You know, and obviously they didn't have a whole lot of, you know, time here on the planet. Um, but yet they had some of the deepest wisdom you, you know you can share about what life is and whatever they were sharing i don't remember but so i was prepared for that um <laughs> i think there's a distinction possibly mm -hmm. uh and I, when i say these things honestly i know i i have a, a tendency to sound you know like you opinionated know. Right. And like, I'm actually this is i'm just talking about possibilities yeah yeah and to I, me they're all possibilities i agree and i express them in a I take them to their where I where I can take them, so they sound more like but, I think they're actualities. But um, I was thinking more in terms of uh, where life is stripped from you unexpectedly: a car accident, a stabbing, a okay. shooting, a kill. You know, something where because I th I can imagine, and this is full projection here. Mm -hmm. I can as opposed to everything else. I can imagine. A uh, a child dying of cancer, they, there's time. They know they they're know. dying. You're right. Uh, there's a difference. And there's I, a difference. So it's like, it's almost like they're fast tracked in that way. Mm -hmm. That's it, correct. Also, not a guarantee that, that they're going to get there. Right. But maybe more of a opportunity. Opportunity, more of a possibility, even more of a likelihood. Mm -hmm. Um, so that occurs to me. You know that like it's. There's room for that also. Like it's, uh, um, yeah. I mean, I just think, um, my point wasn't to say that it could only be one way, but 
but I feel like it certainly happens that way some, if not a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Like, people, I wonder, I'll try to put it in the most, like, open way that I can, I wonder how many people get to reach that point of genuine self-acceptance before they leave the physical body and and go on to whatever's next, you know, Um and it's not, and then there's, you know, other things too. I mean, it's not just, self-acceptance is one piece of it. Um, you know, there's other goals people might have, like a, other forms of enlightenment, aspects of enlightenment, you know. Yeah, and, no, no, no. Uh, That's my goal. You know, <laughs> what do you think that looks like? I have no idea. Uh, well, take that back. I do have a sense of it, but I can't put it into words. Okay. I, I mean, I really, that's really the truth. I actually really do have a sense of it through meditating and and staying focused and staying connected to that. You know, I, 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 it's um, being enlightened, which to me is not being, I mean, if I was an enlightened being, our conversation would be very different than it is now. <laughs> I really believe that. Um, or not at all. Or not at all, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm even sitting here. I mean, I was wondering, you know, I'm going, okay, well, we're going to get into the spiritual, you know. I mean, just even um, connecting to the illusion, non-illusion, the illusion, you know, of of what this is, you know, and we're touching on it, you know, and and so for me, it, at least in my journey, that this sense of loving oneself or loving myself is is really strong and powerful and and because i didn't have it i i it's very palpable to me but it's a flip side to that too in that i realize the love that i experience in general for all beings for my family for my wife for my my animals i don't have kids is so profound right so i can't again i can't even put it into words it's and i'll just sit there and feel and bathe myself in it a lot, you know, and feel so, I feel blessed, you know, I mean, that's, I just feel really blessed or I go to Al-Anon, I go to an Al-Anon meeting almost every Saturday here in Asheville and I sit there and I can't believe what I experience. It's just, it's like, you know, it's one of the most sacred places I've ever been and I've been a lot of sacred places. Yeah, And it's continuous, you know, the love that's in that room, the wisdom that's in that room. And I just, my heart is so full. And I don't know most of the people. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, sometimes it's just about us feeling comfortable going there in ourselves. I would imagine that's what makes it spiritual. Yeah. So it makes it, you know, I mean, I feel like it's more about the experience we have than what's actually happening around us. And then, you know, we call it what we think it is. But I mean, Uh, you know, I I, I mean, and my response to that is, I don't know. You know, I'm I'm much more comfortable these days of really not knowing. And my approach or my way of being is just really accepting that not knowing and not working so hard to try to know Mm. and to put some kind of form to it. Because for me, and this is just for me, for me, the more I do that, the more than I think I do have it. And so then I can control it. 
And I don't want to control it. I, I really want to sit in the non-control piece more than the control piece. <clears throat> and, and this is pr pretty in general. I mean, I could, anyhow. And, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's pretty comfortable for me. Well, two things come to mind around that. Uh, one is my teacher used to say, I'm sure he still says it, he just doesn't hang out with him anymore. Uh, wisdom lies in the gap between knowing and not knowing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would that was one of his, I don't know if it originated with him or not, but that, <laughs> that was something that he would say pretty often. And and then, you know, I have an eight-year-old. She's almost nine. Oh, Sula's nine, almost nine. I know, it's crazy. And... I watch and listen to her making sense of the world or trying to make sense mm -hmm. of the world. And part of how she does it is by, you know, defining the way things are in very clear terms that are so wrong. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's so far from being right. Mm -hmm. And and I, unless it's life-threatening, I try not to debate her on it. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. if it's something that she needs to know isn't that way, I'll tell her. Mm -hmm. But if it's something minor, I, I just kind of let her have it and figure it out. I'm like, yeah, I can see that, you know, I mean, because it's um, and then she'll, you know, the next day she'll say it all differently. And um, there's a there's a there's an inclination, at least as a parent, if not also as an adult. And I happen to be both. De <laughs> definitely a parent. <laughs> um, is, uh, you know, the desire to direct your child's learning experience, growth experience. I mean, it's like it's hard not to want to, to do that. And to some degree, that's part of our job. But knowing when not to do it is as important as knowing when to do it. And that's a place that as a parent, I feel like I fail all the time. Um, and I'm okay with the fact that I fail all the time. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I have a really good relationship with my daughter. Mm -hmm. uh, but I know that I fail constantly. Like, I've never felt like such a failure at anything. Or is it such a success at anything? <laughs> but more more often I feel like I'm failing as a father. Like, even though I have this great kid, you know, it's like... And, and you use the word failing. Deliberately. Yes. Be, I mean, is that because this... No, 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 no. I try not to be too self-conscious about the name of my podcast. Um, I I think parenting is a series of failures. You know, you're always doing your best. And um, kids have a way of pushing our limits because mm -hmm. uh, we teach them what those limits are very early on. And... and and their part of their job is to continue to, you know, test the boundaries. Um, and for their sake, it's part of them learning, you know. Of and, course. And of course. and so I feel like part of my job is to uh, be as constructive as possible in letting her know when she's too close to my edge. Mm -hmm. And that is something I fail at daily i mean i just you know there are days that i do it well and there are days that i don't and there's sometimes i'm able to say you know what i am i'm already really angry right now and it's not even about you but i'm that's where i'm at mm -hmm. so i don't have room in me to negotiate with you about this mm -hmm. you know and can she hear that 
seemingly sometimes sometimes you know sometimes not yeah. i mean depending I mean, on where she is yeah, I of imagine. course yeah right uh the other night we had a really interesting experience she was uh designing her campaign poster she's running for office at her school to be a leader they have a leadership lighthouse this is the first ever she's in third grade and they're ha having like you know Instead of school president and vice president, I don't think they're hierarchizing it, but there's people who will get elected and people who won't. Mm -hmm. And she's running for office. And, and so she made a uh, poster, and uh, I was working on it with her, and we came up with a slogan, Peace Love Blackhawks, you know, because the Blackhawks are her school team. Oh. And, and I helped her, you know, sort of uh, bring her ideas together so they would present well as a poster because I make advertisements all the time she was getting extremely physically frustrated you know and yelling and getting mad at herself and really like really really struggling with it and so I told her a story I said you know I said first of all um, it may be time to just call it a night you know and this may not get done mm-hmm and she started crying. She's like, no, it has to be done tomorrow, which it did. You know, it has to be done tomorrow. And she's really upset. And I said, okay, well, if that's the case, then we need to do it in a way that doesn't involve you throwing things around the room, you know, because that doesn't work either. Like, I can't let you continue to do that. It's not good for you. It's not good for the room, you know. And she's like, well, I just can't do it. She was having a real breakdown around it. Right. So I said, have I ever told you the story? And I knew I'd never told her this story. Um, have I ever told you the story about when I did my senior show? I was an art major, and um, and she said no. I said, you know, I I drew the short straw. There were twenty artists, and there were sixteen weeks, and they could do two artists a week, and everybody picked a number between one and twenty, and that determined when you went. And I picked number one, so my senior show had to be done in six weeks, as opposed to up to sixteen. And I said that was a pressure cooker. You know, this wasn't about maybe getting elected to a thing or not, which is important. This was graduating college or not. Like, this was a big deal. You know, I'm going to spend another year in college or, or do I get to graduate on time? And I had a lot to do before this six weeks was up. And I said, five weeks in, I lost my shit. I had a complete meltdown. And, um, you know, I had done some paintings and uh, one of the two of them were really good. And the third one was really beautiful, and I had planned a fourth one that was going to be a lot like the third one, and I thought I was home free. And I took the paintings to my uh, to the other artists for a critique, and everybody loved what I was doing. And they said, this one is so beautiful. I can see it hanging in a hotel. <laughs> and as an artist, as a visual artist, that's like, that's the musical equivalent of being like this music is so beautiful i can imagine hearing it in an elevator <laughs> you know like that's uh that's the equivalent of having of hearing that your painting belongs in a lobby of a hotel and it was a big painting so it would be in a big lobby of a nice hotel right. didn't matter right. doesn't matter what elevator you're playing in it's right. elevator music right and uh that was upsetting to me cuz i had basically thought i was one painting away from being done and so my professor came in and and because he was the one, mod, you know, moderating that critique, and he said, "How do you, how are you feeling?" <laughs> I was like, "I'm a little freaked out. You know, I'm not interested in hanging hotel art for my senior show." And he said, "Well, you know," and he looked around my stuff, and it wasn't the first time. He said, "You know, 
a lot of your stuff is very flowy. It was very hippie. You know, it's, it's very flowy and it feels really good. And he said, you know, what's, what about some of this? And he made like a karate chop movement. You know, what about some of that? And he kicked, you know, and I was like, he's like, what if your art had some of that in it? I was like, I don't know how to do that. And he said, well, figure it out. You got 10 days, you know? And uh, so for spring break, when everybody else went to Mexico and the desert and skinny dipping and took drugs and had a great fucking time, I spent that time alone in the studio as I had done the pre previous six weeks. I was there eight hours a night, you know, from, I would go in every night at 10 o'clock and stay till two or four in the morning and sometimes earlier and stay later. And uh, that was my life my senior year for the first six weeks. And and I had a I and I went in there to paint to try and find my inner karate kid and uh I could not access it and I really lost it. I mean, I was crying and throwing things and you know That's I didn't it. I didn't rip any canvases, you know, but I, I told I told this whole story to my daughter. Right. I was like, I was you right now. You know, I had this complete breakdown. I was like, I called my therapist, she knows the name of my therapist. This is twenty years ago. I called, you know, or more, twenty seven years ago or something, twenty five years ago. It's like I called him. I was like, I needed help, you know, and she, and then being who she is, she's like, I don't have ten days. You had ten days, <laughs> you know, and uh, and I said, I know, but the point is, like, the paintings that I made, one of them you saw in your grandmother's house, like, you know, that painting, that was one of the paintings that I made after the ten days. It's one of my best paintings, and the other painting sold right away, you know, somebody bought it immediately. It's another one of my best paintings. I said. I had to go through that breakdown to start making real art. Up until then, I was making stuff that was suitable for a hotel. And I said, sometimes that's what you have to do. That's the process. So I know you're upset right now, but we need to draw this mascot, you know? And I'm not saying it was a perfect process, but we did it, you know? And it came out certainly good enough, you know? And I had to really help her. She's like, I don't know how to draw the line. I was like, all right, draw this, curve it this way. I started drawing dots for her to connect dots. Like I figured out mechanically how to make it easier for her. It took me a while. If I had started with a dot thing, there'd have been no meltdown. Mm -hmm. But you know, we're not allowed to draw it for them. Once mm -hmm. they get to the poster, we're, we're hands off as much as possible. Even though I saw kids' posters whose parents had clearly written all the words like it was a mother's handwriting and not an eight-year-old's. Mm -hmm. uh, but... Um, Anyway, it was just, it was a really cool thing. Like normally when she gets to that place where she's whining and screaming and crying, I'm at a place where I'm yelling and disciplining and, and I'm, I'm, you know, we're both a, a wreck mm -hmm. and I was able to kind of like dial back and remember that I had this really almost exact experience, um, share it with her, which is connecting her with a part of my life she doesn't know exists. Um, and then help her through it successfully to where she had a really good poster when it was done, you know. And um, that was one of those times where I was happy to say that I felt like I succeeded as a parent. Um, but I was failing up until that moment. Like, I was like, you're going to just have to go to bed. I mean, it was one confrontation after another. This might get done, not get done, you know, like, I'm sorry, but it's 10 o'clock at night. I mean, we, we finished at 1130 at night on a Sunday. She almost pulled in her first all-nighter. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it was so appropriately inappropriate. Mm -hmm. uh, um, so when I talk about failing as a parent, uh, I, I feel like it's a constant, you know. Um, and most parents I know 
feel that way. Mm. Uh, we're always doing our best, and we all often feel like, you know, like we're not. Louis C.K., my favorite comedian, is always like, you know, permanent damage there. <laughs> You know, <laughs> right. therapist bill there. Yeah, that one's gonna cost me. <laughs> right. Right. That I know that one. That's six weeks. <laughs> so, but that so to me when I listen to you, I go, that's life. I mean, um, you know, the same way you just explained to your daughter that um, how you went through that and then that brought something else out in you the experience that your kids are getting when it doesn't seem like it's the most successful also helps to you know i was just reading something about this you know is it building character or not building character you know right. when is it building character and when is it not building character you know like in kids or in people and um all those so-called failures of yours that create friction and tension, let's say, right. um, also have another side to them that it enhances them as human beings. Especially, I would think, now I'm not a parent, if you're able to own your, you know, I wish I had handled that differently. And maybe, you know, especially, and I would think Sue was getting old enough now where you can have different kinds of discussions than you could have when she was five and six and stuff like that. Yeah, totally. And, you, and you'll continue to as you grow older, you know, I mean, with each other, you know, to be able to go, well, well, maybe we could have done that differently. Well, but what, but what is there to learn from this for both of you? Well, I know a lot of times when things go to that place, you know, then you know, I'll say, I'm like, Sula, you just can't do this, you know? Like, you, this, I, I can't have you doing this, whatever it is. It's not mm -hmm. this mm -hmm. thing the other night, necessarily. And then other times when she's having a meltdown around something that I'm not a part of, but I'm there to help her through it, she's like, it's just all my fault. Everything's my fault, you know? And I feel like I've said to her, I'm like, you know, Sula, some things are and some things aren't. And sometimes things are your fault and sometimes things aren't your fault. You know, I'm not going to tell like, oh, no, it's not your fault. Like some of them are for sure. You know, well, even the statements like that, it's your fault. So what does that really mean? It's your fault. So something you did, there was a reaction to that. There was something that occurred from what you did. I right. mean, to me, it would be breaking it down and saying, yeah, you did this. Now, did you think about this? Did you make a choice? Did you not make a choice? Did you just do it? Did you have a reaction? I mean, that's how I would be approaching it. And that's the way, I mean, I think about it all the time. Yeah. Now, maybe that's too sophisticated for an eight-year-old. Again, I'm not a parent, haven't been a parent. Yeah. So you have to figure out, like, instead of drawing a line, you draw dots. Right. You know? Yeah, so, yeah. You know, and you do that all along, you know. Yeah. It's, it's like, uh, I, you know, my question would be is, so as a, as a parent with your child, how are you bringing them up so, one, they get a sense of life, that's the best that you can give them and so that they take responsibility they grow up into being responsible people meaning taking responsibility for who they are and how they impact things you know i think that's one of the biggest things that we deal with in this world and what i see with lots of adults they don't want to really take into effect that their impact in this situation maybe their in their intention might have been good 
from inside themselves, but the impact really wasn't what they intended. So they're still responsible for that, in my judgment. Right. And it doesn't mean, and you just own that in whatever way you own it. You know, it doesn't even mean maybe I wouldn't choose to do it differently, but I'd go, okay, I get it. You know, I said what I said and you took it that way. It's not really what I meant, but I'm going to get it. Maybe I can find another way of saying it next time because the impact was not what I wanted. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, and I think you're teaching that to kids. You know, it's like, what are you teaching a kid to be? Why are you raising the child? You're raising the child to be a what? Well, hopefully, you know, I, uh, there's a buzzword for it. Um, yeah, emotionally what... resilient. Oh, is that, is that the buzzword? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, you know, we have different roles. Her mom has a role in her life, and I have a role in her life. And we try to get on the same page. Lately, it's been tough. Um, you know, I I view part of my role as her father. You know, um, I mean, one is I'm I'm shaping her future relationships with men by every thing I do. Amen. You know, that so, is true. Yeah, so I'm conscious of that. Um, you know, I also view my job as to toughen her up a little bit. You know, not by mistreating her. I don't mean that way, you know, not like, you know, not spanking the kids so they learn how to handle physical pain. I would right. hit her, you know, no, right. but uh, I've noticed I've noticed her gain some real mental toughness um, in the last couple of years. And, you know, um, but I would also be looking at I, I wouldn't want her to be I'd look at is she closing down to life? Is she open to life? You know, and this goes yeah. back to your original premise here about failure and success and everything, are you open to taking chances, to, to taking risks? Do you feel secure enough within yourself, you know, <clears throat> to take a risk? And so, like, even using her election as, so she's taking a risk, you know, by placing herself out there and being vulnerable right. on whether or not, you know, people are going to vote for her or vote for somebody else because she could have chose not to even run, right? Totally. I yeah. Take it. yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. So that, that's her pretty Her teachers neat. were surprised. Like, oh, Sula wants to run? Great. You know, yeah. and, they, and they made it happen. You right. Know? Um, I mean, I had to step in and make some things happen because we missed a deadline and whatever, you know. And Right, but um, I'm not getting into that part. I'm yeah. just going that within herself she – Well, she... it's interesting you say it because one of the biggest issues I have with her is how shut down she generally is and how she just says no to everything all the fucking time. And I'm just like, Sula, you just can't say no all the time. I remember wanting but to buy her – But the truth is, yes, she can. See, that, that, that – Well, look... she can, but she's going to – she'll have a shitty life. Uh, in your judgment, in and my I, judgment, and I'm right. her father, and, and <laughs> right. I'm gonna, and, so, and I'm gonna impose the what I hope will be the right amount of my will. Yes, like you know, that's that is, that's and a, I'll find out if I'm wrong. But that I see as part of my job. Uh huh. Uh-huh. You know, um, and so, you know, I. I've said to her on many occasions, I'm like, if you say no to everything, you will have a shit boring life. Like I'm offering you, these are the things we can do today, a bike ride or a hike, for example. Like those are the two things. Pick, you know, I don't want to go for, do you want to go for a hike? No. Want to go for a bike ride? No. All right, let me rephrase it. Do you want to go for a bike ride or a hike? Those are your options. You know, we're going to do one of them because your other option is to sit in your room all day. And Mm -hmm. that's not an acceptable option to me. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's like, I have to find ways of, and I'm learning, like giving her two choices 
one of which she has to say yes to, and instead of just letting her say, give, putting her position to say no to everything. I get it. I get it. You know, I just had an interesting experience. So I'm going to bring it because I used to be a school teacher. Okay. Okay. And I was a school teacher um, 40 years ago, or 40, more than 40 years ago, when I was 23, 24, 25 years old. And I taught elementary school. And I just went back this summer. Um, to a wedding in the area and uh, of where I taught. Okay, right. I moved away from there over 20 years ago. And 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 actually, even going to the wedding was also interesting. I, I was going to the wedding of my very close friend's daughter, who I'd known since birth. And I was, and I haven't seen her in 15 years. She's 27 years old now, and she's getting married. And at the reception, I was just blown away. And she was a hard kid. I mean, angry all the time, you know, sulked all the time. Uh, you know, I was in partnership with her father. She didn't like me. Um, uh, she would be angry at me because we used to go and take seminars all the time. We were both mm -hmm. chiropractors and stuff. And um, and yet Sarah came up to me even. <laughs> It was blew me away. She came up and she she was so glad that Tyrell and I were there because she said she thought of us as her godparents, and I didn't even know that. Oh, uh, really? You know, that's cool. But what blew me away was um, what people got up and said about her that mm -hmm. know her now. And I mean, it was just beautiful. I mean, she had turned into. I mean, and she was part of that as a child, but she was angry. She seemed to me to be angry as a child. Right. But she was this loving, giving person. She was a nurse. She was competent. She was blah, 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 blah. So anyhow, that's just one, you know, it's just something I've witnessed just recently of who I saw. As, and I knew her all the way up to the time. I spent a lot of time with her all the way up till she was like 12 or 11. Right. But then I, I had this other experience where um, I went to this fair in the town that I lived in, because uh, I stayed in the town. The the wedding was somewhere else in the region, but I stayed in the town. The town was a really small town, and I taught in the school of that town and the town next to it in, in western Massachusetts, up in the hill towns, they called them. And um, we went to this agricultural fair, which was the 99th one. It's Next year is the 100th. It's just so New England and so amazing. And I ran into uh, a teacher that I taught with over 40 years ago, who's now 87, I'm 67, she, you know, so I was right. 23, she was 43. I ran into a, a student of mine who is now 50, and he was 10 years old. And then I was with talking with somebody else. There was this barn that they had that they put up on the fairgrounds. And the, they were telling me that this man named Fred Barrington took the barn apart, cataloged every piece of it, moved it, and put the barn back together on the property. So Fred was wow. one of my students when I when he was 10 years old, nine years old. Right. And Fred was an artist, and all he did was draw all day long. Wouldn't do his math, right. wouldn't do his, you know, all these so-called subjects and everything. Right. And they were telling me how Fred took this thing apart 
and rebuilt this. And so the bar I'm getting at here is, and as a teacher, Fred, you can't just draw. Right. You got to put that away. You can't just do that. And if I turn my back, Fred's got his crayons out or his pencils out. Right. And, you know, and we'd make detailed drawings, you know, very talented. I guess what I'm getting at is, you know, we have our idea of how we think it should be, how what we should be teaching them, how we should be teaching them. And, you know, and yet there's so much of this we can't see of who they really are. And other forces, I believe, that are in there that are part of this that really helps um, craft who they are, who they turn into as the years go on. Right. You know, when I saw this barn and I did, I went into the barn and it's this big, beautiful barn that they have. You, now it's a historical museum. Uh, and then he cataloged it all and built it and we took it apart and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Well, it's true. I mean, it's a, it's a fine line is what I'm getting at. No, it's no, a there really is... fine line. Um, it's like you even said, so I believe as a parent and I'm not, uh, you know, countering this i believe it's true you have to instill your will on it to a certain degree and it's a fine line yeah right it's very you know um and maybe that's where you're getting into the conversation of success failure and yeah because you're going to make mistakes and stuff but the overall i really believe is she's going to know she's loved she's going to know that you know take a chance it's okay if you don't do it right the you know and hopefully she's going to get that you know that she sets out into the world in that way yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I set her up to succeed by giving her chances to fail. I gave her a stack of paper and I said, here, try it. Try drawing this thing 50 times. You know, it's not going to be easy to draw. Mm -hmm. Do it on here because you only got one shot on your poster, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so I think, you know, learning how to fail, <laughs> like really like the technical learning how to be set up for failure is also being set up for success. Like you need opportunities to fail. The hard thing with raising a kid is, you know, you don't get a lot of second chances. I mean, they're resilient to a degree, but you can mm -hmm. do permanent damage. Like, mm -hmm. you know, she mm -hmm. still talks about the time when she was three years old and I, she wouldn't go to sleep and I got frustrated and I left and I slammed the door. Mm -hmm. She's still, how, why did you slam my door? She's nine, you know, how come you slam my door that time? She's, mm -hmm. She, you know, she might have been two. Like she was young enough that you, generally, they don't still have those kinds of tangible memories. But this obviously left an impression. I mean, I did it consciously. You know, mm -hmm. I was like, she's pushed me to my edge. She needs to know where my edge is. Mm -hmm. That's how I'm going to show her. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, I haven't had to slam a lot of doors since. You know, but I, I think it's okay for her to know where the line is. Um, she, and I, I've experienced, I experienced it with my dogs first, thankfully, but I experienced it with my child. Like they don't know where the line is unless you, t unless you show them, mm -hmm. you know, and that's just a question of how do you want to show them? Like some families show it with spankings and mm -hmm. whippings and mm -hmm. I hear horrible stories. You know, Tony Robbins said his mom poured, you know, a bottle of dish soap down his throat. I mean, I mean, it's like parents have different ways of demonstrating where the line is. Um, I heard a comedian talk really interestingly about it. They said, do you hit your kids? And he said, absolutely not. He said, when you hit your kids, it's just rage. 
you're just enraged at that point. Mm-hmm. He said, now I, he said my wife, I think it was talking about his wife, he said, when she was brought up, you know, her parents did spank her, but not necessarily in the moment. If she did something in a store, they would say, when you get home, you're going to get a spanking. And when it happened, it was done, it was like procedural. Mm-hmm. It wasn't done in the moment with rage. Um, he wasn't saying that he wants that for his kids, but it was an interesting approach. Like it's, mm-hmm. uh, and it's different from wait till your father gets home because then we'll let him get mad and right. punish you. You no, know, yeah. I I I love listening to other parents talk about their, um, their experiences parenting because we're all struggling <laughs> with no. the same things. Makes you know. Sense. Um, Makes sense. I mean, in the case of my daughter, I think she does know that she's loved, and I think she does know the difference, too, because, like, my father sends her, I would call it obscene numbers of gifts. Like, And they're not, he sends packages, now it's, like, once a week. Most of them are filled with crap. Like, he just goes to, he, he for some reason, he shops at Walmart. I don't understand that. He's a Democrat. Um he shops at Walmart, and they have con- tons of bargain bins of two dollars. Walmart supports Republican; they give a lot of their money to the Republican Party. So, one of the ways you can influence politics in your country is where you shop. Costco is a blue company; Walmart is a red company. So, I don't shop at Sam's Club anymore; they're owned by Walmart. Um, I use their credit card because I'll borrow as much money interest-free from them as I can get, but I uh, I don't pay them interest on it, and I don't shop at their stores um so uh that's one of the well i'm not gonna get into that um anyway so he sends all this these gifts to her and he sent so many first of all 90 percent of it is absolute crap so now he's teaching my daughter a value that i don't want her to have which is collecting useless shit is a great idea mm-hmm. i have a lot of stuff but everything i have is me going deep into a particular interest at a particular time, and I tend to overdo it, but that's a different you know, uh, neurosis than just filling your life with absolute shit, you know, whether you want it or not. So that's one piece of it. And another piece of it is he sends these cards, I'm so proud of you, every day I think of you, you make me so happy, all this stuff. And she said, she said one day, she's like, he says all these things, but he never comes to visit me. Right. I saw a quote the other day, and it was really about fatherhood, and it says, it's not presence. It's presence. It's right. presence. Right. right. Yeah, I haven't seen it, but I. Right. I, that was an easy fill in the blank. Right. Yeah. But, uh, but still, that's very poignant. No, no, it is. You it know, totally it's, is. It's yeah. It's not presence. It's presence, which is a totally different kind of giving and being. I even heard somebody say recently that mm-hmm. he, he doesn't believe in. It's not that he doesn't believe in quality time, but he believes in quantity time. He, th- I don't, I don't even know if I agree, but he's like, I think it's important for my kids that I'm, even if I'm just home napping, it's good that I'm home. And he said that he said that, mm-hmm. I was, you know, and he talked about it, doesn't spend a lot of quality time with his kids. Well, and I think it goes back to, it, it's all about intimacy. So I really believe we all have different capacities to be intimate. Mm. And so to me, what, when I hear that, I just go, that's a person that's talking about that really struggles with intimacy. Mm. And um, because and and so it's easy for him to be so he qualifies his relationship through being in the same 
place, but not being connected, not right. being intimate in that way. And um, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. I think there's a lot of people that probably view it the same way because they don't have the capacity to be intimate. Right. And, and I, I think intimacy, it, it, and intimacy is it's intimacy with oneself and intimacy with others. Right. Yeah, they're... Well, they, they're they go hand in hand. They they're, do go they're hand di- in yeah, hand. Yeah, they're different That's and correct. they're... Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm more comfortable being intimate with myself than others. Yeah. You know, that's... Um, I've learned not to trust people. I've learned it really well. Yeah. Yeah, and see, and I, I really pursue and work at not being that way. You know, I mean, I, I'm aware of when I do come up against that because yeah. I clearly do come up against that. But it's like, what, what is it that's really going on inside of me at that particular time? Because for me, so intimacy is is really connected with. Um, uh, empathy and you know and connection and and intimacy um, which is connected to vulnerability and uh, and authenticity and you know and I mean I work and, or I hate to use that word work at I really stay focused on and present with being authentic which is not easy all the time because I can I also work in environments where People think very differently than I do. Right. So it's like, how much do I let out? How much of my my authentic self? So then the question is, how can I still be authentic in this meeting, in this connection with somebody, um, yet also choose what I want to share or how I am? And I do that. Yeah. I mean, that makes total sense because not everybody can handle all of me. I don't think. I can. Yeah, you can, but not yeah. everybody can. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's true of all of us. Oh, no, totally. Yeah. yeah. And you know what? And maybe I, I don't even know if I can because I don't know. That's true. I, that's I don't true. even, I mean, no, you, you know. you probably can't. Actually. You know, it's like. <laughs> uh, going to some awful places right now as a, as a comedian. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think we don't know. I, I was dating someone recently. I think it's over. It's not officially over. It's definitely going to end if it isn't already over. Oh, you've been dating. Uh-huh. Eh. Anyway, you know, she really likes me. And so many times she's like, you're perfect. I was like, not. <laughs> Promise you I'm not. <laughs> and uh, and some things have come up lately where I've been able to say, see, I told you I wasn't perfect. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. It's amazing how people... See what they want to see and hear what they want to hear. Oh sure, and you know the filters that we put on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this whole th- yeah. I mean, her wake up call was like. I mean, early on, I made some really incorrect assumptions about her, and and I found out right away they were incorrect. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, she has two kids. I assume she didn't want more. I thought she was a little older than she is. She's very young. She had kids really young, and. Um, I just assumed because I have one child and it's enough. I assume someone with two kids, that's enough, <laughs> you know, because to me, that's that's already that's the max as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. I, I have some opinions around that. I don't think we need to be populating the earth with more than our replacement value and less would be better. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did good then. 
Pardon me? I did good. Yeah, you did great. But <laughs> she's compensating for you. Okay. So uh, anyway, so, you know, early on, we're having those conversations that you have to have. You know, do you want more kids? I'm like, I don't. Not ideally. No. You know, I mean, if I was in a relationship with someone who was really important to them, then I would consider it. So I haven't had a vasectomy. You know, it's like I don't want to rule it out. Mm-hmm. But it's not. I don't think it's what I want. Um and I met someone also earlier in the year who was a little, little older, beautiful, like so great in so many ways. But she is clearly looking for a father for her children. And she outlined very clearly for me the life that she wants. And when she did, I was like, this isn't going to happen, you know. So the other day, this woman and I were talking. There have been a couple times where I've made it pretty clear that, like, I'm not really looking for more kids. I mean, I would accept her children as stepchildren, like I'm not saying you can't bring your kids into this relationship, but I'm not looking to bring more kids into the world. Although even that, I have some, pardon me, would like to bring one more in. Um, one but, more into the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I remember, you know, that was an early conversation. And then later we were tubing down the French broad. She visited me here and. And something about kids came up, and she's like, wow, you, you're done, aren't you? Like, you don't want more kids, do you? I said, I'd like to be done, you know? And then that was that, you know? And she'll joke every now and then about being pregnant. It's been long enough that since we slept together that she's, if she's pregnant, it's not mine. Um, and she said the other day, she said, I was talking to my mom, and I told her, you know, that I was pregnant from a new guy, you know? And she almost started crying. I said, I'm right there with her, <laughs> you know? And she said, what does that mean? I said, I'm cry- I'd am i be crying too, you know? And she's like, you mean you don't want more kids? I was like, no. And she said, seriously? I was like, yeah. She's like, I want at least two. I said, you know, I'm not your guy. Unfortunately, this is all by text, you know? It wasn't a fight. It was just an open conversation. I was like, I, I it was so clear to me, like, I don't want this. And you, if you really do, then this is just, this is over, mm-hmm. you know? Makes sense. Um, and she's like, well, you know, let's have sex one more time or something like that. I'm like, that's fine. We can do that, you know, but I, I don't want to be making kids, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and and uh, I said, you have to promise me we're not going to get pregnant. And she said, I would never do that. I, I, would, I would want you to want it. Like, I'm not going to trap somebody. Um and I said, all right, but I don't even think it's going to happen. Like, I think that's, I think even that's not going to happen now, which is just unfortunate. Well, it's unfortunate for a couple of reasons. One is sex is off the charts. The other reason is, um, I think it's, you know, we were emotionally very intimate with each other. Like we really, I think we really fell in love, you know, even though it was, didn't take that long. Um, and if it's going to end to me, it's nice to end it lovingly you know and like it's nice to end it intimately for her i think it's going to be too painful to be intimate again and she's just now she's like first she was really cavalier she's like well let's you know do it one more time and you know she you know and and uh i think she's i don't know because i haven't been able to get her to correspond with me all of a sudden but she's like uh she said i think it might be too painful so i was like i understand that but let's for me i'm like well let's have whatever it is or isn't let's have a conversation about it like let's be that adult about it um at this point i'm not even sure that's going to happen like i'm not sure i'll even get an exit interview you know i think it's just i think it might just be done 
mm-hmm. um, which is on one level totally fine. On another level, it's like it's not how I like to wrap things up, you know. And you don't always get what you want. Oh, right. often right. I often don't get what I want. <laughs> well, nobody does. Uh, you know. Yeah. Um, God, just listening to you and I, and and you're not the only one I hear talk about relationships and stuff and. God, man, start new relationships. I just couldn't even imagine yeah. getting involved in somebody's life like that again. It's it's huge, and it's hmm. yeah. I mean, and I love my wife, and I love being in relationship with her. I mean, it's the best it's ever been, and we've been. Oh, that's good. Just, oh, it's the best it's ever been. That's great. And um, and we've gone through a lot of struggle to get to this point. <clears throat> and um yeah i, I mean uh, it's it, it's wonderful and yet i don't believe i'd want to do it again you know if, if say she passed away because that would really be the only you know right i i wouldn't she doesn't believe me she says oh no you'd have somebody right away i said no i wouldn't well you can't know that's true you can't but but at this moment, you wouldn't be pursuing it. I That's, sure wouldn't. Yeah. No. I mean, I you know, just not at this stage, you know. And 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 I, I had some uh, an interesting experience. I had a patient come in, um, new patient. I don't know, maybe three months ago, and I'm she's sitting there, and I'm you know, you know, doing the initial intake and everything, and I didn't really look at her age. And then all of a sudden, I glanced down at her age, and and she, and her husband's sitting in the room with her. And she's 80, and I never would have known this. Mm. I mean, she's really, um, she's uh, very, very, a young, young, young right. looking 80 year old. I mean, I, I would never have known she was 80 years old. And we're talking, and her husband's there and stuff, and talking about why she was there, da da da. And then she goes, You know, we're just married for it four months. Oh, wow. We're newlyweds. And and the energy between them was really palpable. I mean, it was really yeah. strong, you know, very physical, very loving, you know, it was just really, and the fact that they were only married four months. And I, you know, and I, I mean, we worked together probably five or six visits and, and you know, I really, it was really neat. Yeah. You know, this reminds me of something because I just had this experience. I had another new client yesterday, 85 year old woman and um i found myself saying this today and it's from i hang around with a lot of older people through my practice you know there's a certain percentage that are old and like 85 and i go i i really hope of course who knows that i get to 85 i mean i would assume so but no I, i don't really look at life that way but there's something i know that they have a viewpoint that I don't have yet. Right. And I'm curious about it. Yeah. I'm curious about the viewpoint from 85. I know what it's like now at 67. Right. And I certainly know what it's like before that, you know. And it's like, wow, pretty neat. I listened to this woman talk about her life yesterday, and I went, wow, that's pretty neat. That's cool. Yeah, it was really cool. Yeah, it was really cool. I love meeting people that are in their 80s, even 90. I've had some clients that are 90 that are still very, very there and really still engaged in life. It's really, it's cool. It's really sweet. 
And then, so just going back, you know, I'll bring this up now because we, we, you mentioned the word old before, you know, and, and, um, you know, so I get to plug the whole idea around elders in the world mm. and, and, uh, something that I think is really missing is, is people as they get older to really embrace being elders and, and being elders in a conscious way and giving back to the world because that's what elders do they give to the ones coming behind right you know and it's a big piece that's missing in our world i believe and especially the western world with um, the way the western culture and european descent you know and has done away with that it seems to me at least and I, I think a lot of what we suffer from in our society is the fact that there aren't elders, you know, that you know they're elders. Right. And, uh, and they're holding that space on an energetic level and beyond an energetic level. And so old is really beautiful for me. Really beautiful. I think that's a great place to stop it, man. <laughs> okay. Um, this has been terrific. Well, I don't know what it's been. I mean, I'm sitting here going, well, this is a lot of just stream of consciousness. <laughs> that, yeah. That gets recorded, disseminated, I guess. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a glimpse, you know, into yeah. um, what happens when two people sit down to talk. There you go. You know, I don't. In some ways, I don't think there's anything more interesting than that. You know, it's stories and it's reflection and, you know, we know each other. Right. Uh, I like you. I'm not going to, you know, project your you feelings onto like me. You. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, it's, I mean, for me, this whole thing is a treat. Mm. I'm starting out with the people who are important to me, who help me get to where I am, mm -hmm. you know, whether they know it or not. Mm -hmm. um, people have been uh, influential mentors. You know, they've 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 impacted they've impacted me. Even mm -hmm. even uh, negatively, some of them. You know, mm -hmm. not in your case. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, I mean that it's. I've had some. I had you know one friend in particular who we had a real falling out, and part of our part of this podcast thing having him on was a, there was a lot of healing a lot of direct open conversation about what happened mm. from both sides mm. and a huge amount of healing that mm. happened you know mm. um i mean the joke at the end of it was you know i said i said uh if this has been you know an incredibly healing conversation and he's like well for you maybe i was like well <laughs> i said it's my podcast <laughs> <laughs> it was a great moment uh -huh. so um i think these things are important i think these kinds of conversations are valuable um i like listening to them that's why i'm doing it uh -huh. you know um i listen to podcasts all the time and my favorite ones are where two people have a conversation that i can sort of dive into and and um, you know, feel like I was there for it, uh -huh. you know, or I'm sorry, I missed it and I get to hear it, you know, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Like, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. so I hope, hope that's the experience that we're giving to people is, uh, um, 
I had Michael uh, Hurd in here last oh, week, uh-huh. and uh, and the the sort of running joke during our conversation was uh, to our listener, so meaning the one you know the one person who'd be listening, uh-huh. uh, but. That's okay, even if only one person listens. I know my stepmom will listen to all of them. So. Well, hi, stepmom. Yeah, her name's Holly. You can... Hi, Molly. Holly, Holly. Oh, Holly. Holly. Hi, yeah. Holly. As she likes to say, I have her legs. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, right. Anyway, cool, well, man. Th- well, thanks for asking me. You know. Yeah. It's been fun. All right, we did it. Jeffrey now knows what it means to record a podcast, and he might even like it. So many cool stories and so much wisdom. There's just something I love about talking to Jeffrey. If you enjoyed our conversation, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes. Also, visit our website, use our Amazon portal, and make sure you tell your friends about learning to fail. If you feel so inclined, please consider making a donation on our donation page. That way, we can keep failing for lifetimes.